I think the filmic opportunity really can speak to a lot of that kind of theoretical work which might look very didactic on a 2D (laughs) drawn model or the words that I try and use. That's Michelle Evans talking about one of her favourite short films, To Bob Mermaid. Michelle is an academic whose work spans both arts and business. She was nominated by the Australian-American Fulbright Commission to study in the US for her 2013 postdoc scholarship and her current role is a social professor in leadership at the Charles Sturt University in New South Wales. Thankfully, she remains very down-to-earth and has practical ideas that relate to all kinds of leaders. Michelle is also an Aboriginal woman, but you might not know that when you first see her. And we talk about that, what she calls skin colour politics. It's easy for me as a non-Indigenous city-dwelling bloke to think of Aboriginality as something either in the past or only in rural areas, you know, something not relevant to me. Michelle always helps me see a different perspective and she does it in a really positive way, opening up a range of issues I think we need to face as a society today. I hope that anyone teaching about Indigenous issues or looking for short films to bring it all to life will be a little more enlightened after hearing Michelle's story and our broader chat here. The best short films for lifelong learning recommended by teachers for teachers. This is Short Films Teachers Love with your host, Richard Lee. Thank you for joining me this morning. It's uh, it's great to talk to you. You're doing lots of interesting things and I wanted to talk to you because of this this background that you have in, um, well, it started with arts management, didn't it? And and you were the founding head of the Willen Centre for Indigenous Arts and Cultural Development. Tell me how that came about and what that was like. I guess my background is in theatre, Richard, and uh, community theatre in particular, working with community arts and different communities about, you know, using the arts for social change and... Uh, I think getting a management degree, even if it was an arts management degree, was just extraordinarily helpful. When I was a student at the Victorian College of the Arts in the late 90s, there were only, I think, a few, less than a handful of Aboriginal artists in the different disciplines. And so I was very keen to take up the challenge about how do I create a space for a lot of Aboriginal artists that I know in the in the kind of Melbourne Victorian community and even nationally to to come to a place like that, you know, that kind of foot in the door leadership that I really think's exciting. Yes, yeah, it's interesting to say, you know, uh, talking about arts management, it's only an arts management, but I I, I kind of picture arts management as possibly the most difficult kind of management, you know, the old herding cats phrase, you know, thinking of how how do you manage and how do you grow in leadership in this space where you're dealing with independence and people who want to do their own things are very passionate about doing their own things. So how did that then translate? It's almost like you've shifted from an arts background into a business background and they're two areas that can very much you know, be in conflict with each other, aren't they? <laughs> yeah. So what happened, I guess, is uh, after I had done my arts management degree and I was running Willen, um, is I was very passionate about arts management and, and what it could do if we had a lot of Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander people running arts centres because certainly in the Northern Territory where there's a lot of community-owned uh, arts 
agricultural centres, um, there still is the majority of management run by non-Aboriginal um, arts managers. So that seemed to me to be like... Uh, it's all about self-determination in its different ways, right? So how we um, gain control of of the management and the, the marketing of our art and um, the cultural sort of stuff. So I set up an Indigenous Arts Management course at the Victorian College of the Arts and it was just such a pleasure. I taught that for over five years to such a great group of people. Each different year I had different people from all over Australia and here we were doing a management degree, but um, the kind of interest in the room was about social change. And so I went to look at the literature on Indigenous arts leadership, of course. <laughs> bum, bum, there was nothing, surprisingly, um, <laughs> at that point wanting to do a PhD, which is always such uh, a big commitment and some people say crazy commitment, <laughs> which it is huge. But, uh, no, it just made sense to me. But the only place you can study leadership is in a business school. And uh, I was at the Melbourne Business School, which is quite an Americanised um, business school in Australia and uh, lots of international faculty and, you know, the staff lounge looks like the Qantas Club and it's all very... There's just so much resource. It was just not what I was used to in the arts, but I was the only Aboriginal person in the space and um, I was thinking, well, I just need some other people to kind of have a crew to work with, to have fun yeah. with, and that led led us to kind of conceptualise and develop uh, an Indigenous entrepreneurship program. Mm, which was Murrah, which was where I met you. It's Murrah. It continues. <laughs> and so you're continuously, so you're still involved with Mara even while you're um, where you are now. Mm. I am. I'm still the program director and a research fellow at Melbourne Business School. But uh, yes, I'm based at Charles State University as an associate professor in leadership. And uh, it's great. It's great to continue that that. Um, involvement and to, to think about, you know, what's happening in the Indigenous business sector because um, even though a lot of people would think the Indigenous business sector is a lot of the arts and cultural entrepreneurs, um, that is a strong section but it's certainly not the majority. Aboriginal business people are in every industry and uh, it's just been um, so eye-opening really. I was kind of blown away teaching this kind of Murrah program with all these entrepreneurs and, and they would start doing business with each other from the first class. So I was like, wow, okay. That Again, I just didn't have the foresight to kind of think this would happen. I mean, you know, I'm, I work in culture, so I'm all about, oh, let's dream a big kind of cool project up or something like that, which... Yeah, that's just what I do. Um, I like to, to do those sort of social change programs. So it's been an education, Richard. Yeah, fantastic. Well, and that's that's where I I guess I step in and go, okay, how did you how did you learn all this? Where did this come from? You know, how and and then how do you teach it? I guess that's the bigger thing of what I'm trying to do, you know, in, in these interviews with people is, you know, how did you do that? Where does and where did the arts fit in? Because short film, you know, is is an art form that's very current and accessible. Um and I often go into 
you know, different interviews that I have with people, I go in knowing that they've, you know, had a, a large experience with films. Um, you, I had no idea, but I knew you had an arts background. So, um, but it doesn't look like you do use a lot of short films in your teaching, and yet I know that they, short films do have a place in your life. So let me explore that a little bit. Let me start by asking you about one of the films you've recommended, and this is from a collection called From Sand to Celluloid, which is a great recommendation in itself because that's a DVD which has six short films, Indigenous films, uh, and the one that you've chosen from that is called Two Bob Mermaid. Hi, Kay, let's try. Yeah. Uh, um, this is Eleanor. She just moved Hi. here. Hi. Titter. No matter what you do for them, they still act like a bunch of monkeys. This is about Corrine, a fair-skinned Koori girl growing up in a country town in 1957 when people weren't, when Aboriginal people were not welcomed in a public swimming pool. Tell me about why you like this one. What is it about this that is good for teaching and learning? Yeah, it's it's an awesome film. Um, I like it because of. Um, the sort of um, skin colour politics, certainly at the centre of it, um, of a young um, girl or a young lady really having to deal with the politics of Aboriginality um, within a very kind of um, segregated part of Australian history. And this was the time um, where it was set around the Freedom Rides with Charlie Perkins, um, literally going to places like this swimming pool in Moree and, um, you know, having a lot of Aboriginal people jump in and, uh, you know, disrupt the norm or the, the kind of control that the white majority in the town or majority uh, was trying to enforce about places where Aboriginal people could be and couldn't be. But the thing that I like um, that relates to my teaching is I'm, I'm interested in the leadership work that individuals have to do inside of themselves even before they do acts of leadership. So we have to, um, and that's a lot of my kind of theoretical work, is what do we need to navigate inside of ourselves? And so this young girl, we watch her kind of working through, do I um, pass as um, white to get access and also get to play with my other non-Aboriginal friends um, or, you know, and she's she's shamed up by her Aboriginal family who see her doing this. Um, she's You can see her having sort of um, these um, magical reality dreams about being a mermaid from the films at that time and, and kind of, you know, that talks to all of us about um, when we were young, thinking about, you know, what we would love to do and, and, and kind of slipping into that fantasy mode of what was possible or what's not possible perhaps and, uh, you know, and it explores all of that. And I think, you know, the filmic uh, opportunity is is to re really can speak to a lot of that kind of theoretical work which might look very didactic on a 2D <laughs> drawn model uh, as best I can to explain it or the words that I try and use. I do use a lot, Richard, of... Um, I film my interviews, so I will show Aboriginal artists talking about leadership in that way and exploring it rather than me just 
reading out their words because I think it's it's much there's just much more richer nuances there that we can really hear I guess yeah yeah um the uh, I think I mentioned to you in in our conversation about Anita Heiss you know and I've, I've read a little bit of her book um am I black enough for you I think it's called you know and that whole issue that you mentioned there and and even in the film you know we see the conflict from both sides. As you say, she's when she joins her white friends, she's ostracised by her, you know, Aboriginal friends and vice versa. It's kind of, it's this really awkward space. I um, After I watched that little clip the other day, I heard this uh, amazing philosophical discussion on ABC Radio called Race and Gender in an Age of Transition. And, and the, this big idea that, you know, we're moving into a space where you can start to even think about choosing your gender, you know, and yet you can't choose your race. You know, your race is something that is both an internal construct, but it's an external cultural construct as well. And that's, yeah. you know, it's a it's a really tricky thing when, when you get people sort of saying, oh, you know, either you don't look enough this way or that way, you know, how... How do we deal with that as a society? But how do you deal with that internally? And I think, as you say, the film really, really unpacks that in a in a very easy to digest way. Yeah. Yes, and it can just it speaks straight to it. And you know, Anita was one of my um, participants in the PhD study, and and uh, her she was named as one of the. Um, people who took Andrew Bob to, to the federal court over uh, racial discrimination under 18C, which is what the parliament's trying to repeal or change at the moment around um, racial vilification. And, uh, you know, just this whole idea of being able to label people as um, not being Aboriginal because they're fair skin and not really engaging in that whole discussion about what cultural genocide actually is and and the oncoming project of colonisation in this country and all of those things. And people like Anita and and other fantastic people like Bindi Cole and other artists, a lot of the artists engaged in my project were a part of that big political action at at that time. And I think, you know, this new breed of... Uh, Aboriginal politicians that's kind of growing is it's really exciting because now we've got people who are going to have a voice in the legislative and and kind of um, legal process of our country um, rather than being outside and being um, you know the subject of <laughs> and being kind of put in that that welfare mentality. There's a real challenge um, that we're seeing. Bodies actually doing it, <laughs> and I think I think that's really leadership, and um, yeah, so that's what I'm really interested in. How these individuals and that young lady in the film epitomises it. How do they deal with that insider outsider? How do they deal with what's expected from cultural community and what's necessarily safe for a business to say make a profit? Um, where that can actually really, really test and pressurise around cultural norms, you know, about giving back and being transparent about it, you know. So I find it fascinating. Yes, it's it's a rich vein. 
Tell me um, a little bit about the space you're in at the moment, because then I want to ask you about these uh, two others that you've recommended. So on a day-to-day level, so you, you're heading up, no doubt you would make trips to Melbourne to um, uh, to the Melbourne Business School and the Murrah program there. Um, but on a day-to-day basis, you are lecturing. Just give me a practical sense of what your, your teaching and you know uh, educational world looks like at the moment where you are at Charles Sturt. Yeah, so I I, um, I guess I'm a discipline lead for leadership in our School of Marketing and Management here at CSU. And a part of that is I've um, rewritten the Masters of Business Leadership, which is our kind of flagship leadership course. And I teach um, the, the first subject of that. It's called Leadership Theory and Practice. Um, and so I teach that online to um, a cohort of students, which could be anywhere in the world. And and that's a kind of interesting space to be involved in. Like, how do you teach leadership online? I mean, that's been something I've been wrestling with because usually leadership development hacks get people in a room and, you know, get people to kind of have transformative um, mindset moments uh, as a group, of course, and then they they go out back into their um, wherever they're from. People immediately think about the hero who has the vision, who has all the ideas. We're thinking of leadership as something that doesn't belong to a particular individual. Leadership is something that is collective. It belongs to a group of people. Finally, in grade nine, after an emergency foster care placement, I stood before a judge with a social worker and a lawyer by my side, and the judge said, Nick, we're going to take you from the custody of your father, and we're going to offer you another opportunity. The other opportunity that I was afforded was to go to a place called the Milton Hershey School. So how does leadership happen? Uh, The paradox of leadership was one of them from Professor Sonia Ospina. Uh, And the other was uh, Nick Nisley, a story about leadership for humanity 3.0 is a TEDx talk. And I was going to say, you know, do you find them competing with your own lecturing style? But if you're not lecturing, then it's a natural fit, isn't it? Yeah. And also, I think why I like to use clips like that, um, certainly Sonia's one is they are reading Sonia. And so one of the things that I found when I was a PhD student in particular is, you know, you're reading all these amazing theorists and you're going, oh, man, this is what I think. And um, but they're on these pedestals away and you don't know who they are, what they look like. And you know, I work with Sonia Ospina now. She was one of those people that I read about and I was just like, this is an amazing person. And to have her involved with me in the research that I do now is, is a joy. And I, I want them to see her talking about her ideas, not just reading them and interpreting them and being very academic and intellectual with the text. I want, I want a lot of the work of leadership is in the talk, in the way we talk, in the way we frame things. And so getting people to have a look at people doing that themselves is really helpful, especially academics. Nick Nisley is another, you know, interesting cat. I love that that film. It's one of my absolute favourites. Nick's great. I've, so I've known him um, and I love his story. I mean, he's a he's a a foster kid, a kid in the kind of orphanage system, and he talks about that. So he weaves his life story into it, which is really one of the big key teaching points that I talk about with 
leadership, how we need to lead from our life stories. Mm. And his story about the Hershey, the the founder of Hershey's in America and, you know, the big chocolate maker. But what, what stood out for me about that story was his, his sense that he got from the founder of Hershey having not only started the chocolate factory but also starting the social enemy, the, the U- Hershey University, I think it is, but that idea of humility and, and the servant nature of leadership um, was quite striking for me. I, I wasn't expecting to hear that from Nick. Yes, yeah, it's, it's a beautiful story and I, I love it too. And, and I love that, you know, Nick's able to kind of take us through not only his time as a, a, a kid in the, that orphanage and the academy, but then as a, a kind of an executive <laughs> in that in that organisation. So you can see that he's, he's enacting his leadership and he's giving back in that transparent way. And now what's he doing? I mean, this is a guy who I met um, at the Banff Centre in Canada running their big leadership program. He now works for the University of Cincinnati because he wanted to go back home to the mainland. But he... Uh, that was a very exciting thing because the BAMP Centre is like this big arts kind of professional development. It's like elite artists from all over the world turn up and kind of live in BAMP, which is just extraordinary in itself. But here's this leadership program at the centre of an arts um, development centre. Wow. It was exactly what I was interested in. And um, I can see how he uses the arts to make some of these things. And I think storytelling is a big piece of it. Okay. Now, the last the last clip you've recommended was a comment from – now, she's got an unusual name. I'm not sure how to say it. Is it Dungal Gurawiwi? Yeah. Yeah. So, now, this is from um, Kwanda Q&A, um, which is a, a national program that has – Engages lots of people, I think, in, in the conversation around politics and, and culture in Australia on a weekly basis. And this was an episode that they ran from Arnhem Land up in Northern Territory. Yeah. I'm no leader, but... <laughs> people are laughing at that. I think, you, I think you probably are, whether you know it or not. If you say so. <laughs> Yeah. She is right. Um, as Indigenous young people, we are not, we are, you know, <laughs> claim ourselves as leaders because um, we are chosen. Um, yeah. Yeah. So I'm not much of a Q&A watcher because it just revs me up too much late at night. However, I knew it was going to be from the Garama Festival, which is where this uh, Q&A was uh, held, which is a big kind of meeting of all of the different clans around um, the Yungal Nation, and it's a yearly event. And uh, why I liked this piece when I was watching it and I went back and I've, I've you know, created a little clip for my teaching is is the interplay between what Garawiwi says and um, there's another lady who, who jumps up and asks some questions and, and, they qu- and Tony Jones gets involved as well. So the whole thing about leadership is it's not necessarily, it's not about the person. It's about how the pers- uh, a person um, 
can emerge as a leader if they're granted and if they claim that leadership kind of frame, but more importantly, that they're collectively endorsed and mutually endorsed as the leader. So to see that interplay happening, I think we can see it in this clip. We have someone endowing Garawiwi as a leader straight up, her pushing that back, someone else saying, yeah, but this is what you do and this is what I see you doing, Um, and her kind of trying to explain a different way of thinking about leadership. So we, we see all of that happening there and it really talks to one of the kind of key theories in leadership that I really like about this kind of three different parts of of the leadership, uh, how leadership can emerge, which is the act of um, claiming that space. So I've got to be willing to claim my own self as a leader, but that's not enough. I need to be granted. So people might say, you're, you're the leader in this, maybe not with those words, but in, in action, like you, you're leading us here and then it needs to be collectively endorsed. And there's some beautiful work on this sort of um, way of thinking about leadership as this very interactive kind of phenomenon. And and that's what makes it a really hard thing to research because it happens between people. It's like this kind of black box that we, we every time we go to research it, it almost evaporates, like it's really hard. So I think this, this clip just kind of is a, is a nice little... Um, lab of us kind of being able to kind of pinpoint how these things are happening and how people resist and push back and then create new things about talking about leadership. Yeah, and I loved how what struck me was how Tony Jones says, you know, you're a leader whether you know it or not. And I, and then Gina, um, the woman asking the question, who was it, Gina Smith, says, well, well, she is a leader. And as you say, that kind of kicks off this conversation, well, you know, she's a leader. Uh, it's not that she's chosen to be a leader herself and kind of announce to the world, I'm your leader. She's been appointed and it's become this collaborative thing, as you say. It was, yeah, it was, it was a fascinating little moment in that conversation. It is. And, and it's also, you know, so then we take it one step further from what you're saying with Tony Jones is this happens from, you know, non-Indigenous Australia going, this is the leader. So they appoint Aboriginal leaders a lot of the time. And so how how do communities rise up and say, no, these are the people that we want to speak for us on this issue at this time? Like it's going to change probably tomorrow or on a different issue, it'll be someone different, you know, and that kind of really dynamic piece of it rather than this kind of very patronising, almost um, imperialistic view of saying, okay, you're a leader whether you like it or not. It's like... What statement? And so we can talk about that. It's quite it's quite fun to, you know, pull it apart. Yeah. And well, uh, the thing that I found a little condescending was he said, whether you know it or not, you know, it was almost like she wasn't aware. Well, I'm sure she was, you know. Yes, very, very powerful person. <laughs> yeah, yeah. So, so what is a leader? Yeah, exactly. Books written on this, uh, Richard. I mean, look, I th- I think uh, it's I'm more interested in the phenomenon of leadership and how leadership can em- emerge in um, in different kind of smaller acts in everyday acts uh, in between people. Um, how we harness things. One of the things I've been doing with um, 
my Murrah alumni out of the Murrah program is every year kind of um, challenging the group to think about how might they enact a legacy? Uh, how collectively could they do something? And um, i.e. provide leadership around the Indigenous business sector. And it is fascinating to me to watch how that kind of challenge is taken up. And uh, one of the people that I've watched um, just be absolutely awesome about this is a young lady called May Rosanta. She runs a firm called 33 Creative. And she was um, just with me, like, you know, I want to do things. I love to do kind of collective projects. That's just my background, as you know. And she was just like, you know, I want to set up, um, you know, why don't we celebrate Indigenous businesses? And so we started brainstorming and we came up with Indigenous Business Month. Let's just claim October as it and let's just, like, run national events all around. And we've just done it. Like, I'm just, I, I kind of, we both roll our eyes at people who go, oh, so much work. It was like, no, book a room, invite some people, do something. Like, how hard is it? Like, honestly, just do it, right? And and uh, and so I, I think, you know, there are leaders, obviously, and um, I consider myself a leader in certain ways uh, through thought leadership and through um, the way I like to teach and work with people. But um, I'm much more interested in that phenomenon of leadership and how people work with it. Mm-hmm. Excellent. And just and just to finish up then with what what are some films that have um, impacted you, whether feature films or short films? What are, what are some of the great stories on film that um, have been part of your story? Mm. Australian Film Commission has done a lot of Aboriginal short kind of collections and um, I think Redfern now uh, as a, a series of, of shorter stories that are somewhat linked. Um, I think there are some really you know, powerful stories in that that I um, have found completely confronting and challenging and, um, and it's so familiar and um, I'm so grateful for those filmmakers to be showing these things on, on, you know, mainstream television. And NITV has been running all of the short films as well, which has just been great. That's what I'm interested in is to to just hear Indigenous stories. And there's one um, uh, TV series that's come out of Canada in the last few years that I've really liked called Hard Rock Medical. And one of the young guys who came through... um, the Willen Centre, Mark Cole-Smith, who's now like a uh, an Australian actor, uh, he's done, doing a whole range of things. He's in the Canadian drama and he plays an Aboriginal guy from Australia who doesn't know very much about his cultural background and he's in this kind of First Nation Canadian um, space out on um, mission reserves uh, doing, you know, medical type drama thing. And it's great. It's awesome. It's great to see, you know, our community stories basically happening in, in real time, same time over there. But to have that crossover between Australia, Canada, and especially to have young Mark, who I've known since he was, what, 16. So it's kind of nice to to enjoy seeing seeing that. Yeah. So. All right, thank you so much. That was uh, that, that was excellent. Thank you for the opportunity. Find all the film links and related notes in the description, and look out for the edited highlights of this discussion on YouTube.
This show is a proud member of the Education Podcast Network. Podcasts for educators, podcasts by educators. To learn more, visit edupodcastnetwork.com.